Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Just some housekeeping stuff, as we usually do at the outset of each episode. Massive response to our series on the Charlestown armored car robberies. Man, what a story that was. I remember it like it was yesterday. That crew took some serious scores for, I don't know, a decade or so after this crew was captured. Armed robberies in the New England region plummeted. They just really did. And again, comparing reality to Ben Affleck's movie, The Town, there's a scene where the bank teller, later Ben Affleck's you know, love interest in the story, says somebody had called her a toonie. And she says, you know, like at first I thought he was saying townie, but it's kind of a derogatory statement that longtime townies in Charlestown called yuppies, basically yuppies who moved into the neighborhood, toonies, they call them, right? Because they're a cartoon caricature of a actual townie. And that's actual, you know, if you're from Boston, you probably know that, but <laughs> it's true. I knew several guys from Charlestown. They were into hockey and they were tough as nails. I bet they still are, but it was a tough neighborhood. It just was. And I don't think any townies are left over there now, but probably say the same thing for Southie as well. All right, guys, I kind of bumped some shows out of order here today because I think we need an update on the Karen Reed case. Turtle Boy Aiden Kearney of Turtle Boy News has been arrested and charged with domestic violence and another count of witness tampering in this case. The woman who is the focus in this case seems to be a woman who has testified before the grand jury in Boston on the federal end of this, I believe. One of the problems with this, this just happened. I'm recording here on the evening of the 29th, December 29th. I believe Aiden was arrested on December 27th, and it had been going on. I guess, I think he is in the process of divorce and he was seeing another woman, a new woman, and it was kind of a volatile relationship. And I think on December 9th, at least according to my research, they broke up. And I really don't know the full story. I've come across the woman's name. I'm not going to use it for the time being because there's so much information out there that I don't know what to believe, quite frankly. And where she's a victim of domestic violence, I would be reticent to disclose that anyway. You can find it in other publications, I guess, online. 
but he is charged with one count of domestic violence and another count of witness intimidation. Man, it's mind-boggling how this happened, and I don't know much about it. He is accused of pushing her. That is the violence part of the domestic violence charge, and I guess threatening her. I really don't know, <laughs> to be honest with you. There seems to have been a restraining order filed by this woman on Christmas Eve, which would naturally be the 24th. So I don't know. And after Aiden was arrested during the hearing to revoke his bail from the other case, Aiden played a, or his attorney played a 15-minute recording that seemingly puts this arrest in question. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I know Aiden's in jail right now, probably in the Dedham House of Correction. And it seems to be about 10 days before anything happens with the case. So I think he's serving that bid, man. He's always been good to Boston Confidential. So it seems a little strange to me that Aiden Carney and his attorney had a bit of a victory the week before where he was allowed to contact whomever he wanted because that was a district court order. And when you're indicted in superior court order, that's a whole new set of rules. And the judge even said to the prosecutor, by what mechanism can I keep him from talking to people? And the special prosecutor, Mello, really had no reply because he can't. He has that right. We all do, quite frankly. So... His attorney, Aiden's attorney, was kind of arguing that they were striking back retaliation, if you will, because Aiden did have a good day in court when actually when he was indicted for those 16 counts, he could get back to work. I don't know what happened there. And man, it's tough. It's got to be tough for Aiden right now. And again, I have to say... Show me where he's been wrong in the Karen Reed case. You know, nobody really can. It was certainly a mistake to put yourself in that predicament. If that were me, I would have stayed well away, guys, from any witnesses in that case on any level. So I know he's probably kicking himself at this point, but that's what I have. There's not much news there's a lot of speculation on YouTube. It's getting to the point where I honestly don't know who to believe, you know. And I've never really gotten into the YouTube end of this stuff. There's, man, there's a lot of stuff going on in this case. It kind of reminds me of the early days of the Mara Murray case, where there was a lot of poison floating around about that case. There's a lot of it directed towards Aiden. There's a lot of it directed towards people who support Karen Reed. And man, this is the strangest case I've ever encountered. If anybody has anything else to compare this case to, let me know because I'm racking my brain. But if you have a case to compare it to, drop me a line at barry at bostonconfidential.net. That's Barry at bostonconfidential.net. I think in our last episode, guys, I went over a couple of the things that stood out to me. 
And I think I'm going to do that again today because, as I said previously, there are numerous things that give me pause in this case. And when I had Aiden on the show, I had mentioned to him, we disagree a little bit, I think, on this, where I believe that the FBI coming in, riding to the rescue in the Karen Reed case, man, that gives me a lot of pause. It just does. The FBI is wholly political. And there's a Democratic machine in Massachusetts that has a lot of pull, a lot of pull. And I know that sounds like a conspiracy theory, right? But I'm from Boston, right? For decades upon decades, the FBI has been corrupt in this town. Don't forget that. All the way up to the Boston bombing, the FBI, in that specific case, read Michelle McPhee's book, Maximum Harm, about the Zaneyev case. Two things about that case, guys. It's recent, right? If this is recent memory, you don't have to go back to Whitey Bulger and John Conley. In the Boston bombing case, a couple of Boston cops almost got into a street beef with the FBI because they weren't sharing information. They were all in this intelligence center sifting through stuff, and there's two feds not sharing anything. And finally, another cop just says, hey, what the hell are you doing over there? And it blew up. It blew up pretty big. But also in that case, the person who made that bomb is still on the loose, and the FBI knows who it is. How you like them apples? So if you call me a conspiracy theory here about the FBI in the Karen Reed case, just browse a few pages back in the FBI's history. You'll see where I'm coming from. And I don't even think I have to mention, just in the last election, the FBI lying to the FISA court, the nation's most secret terrorism court, in order to spy on a presidential candidate and later a president of the United States. That is a fact, and you may not want to believe it, but it is true. How about that? I did bring it up. So guys, one more thing about Aiden before we get into some of the other things that stand out to me about the Karen Reed case. It's hard to do this, but you do have to separate Aiden Carney's case from Karen Reed's. You just do. And you have to think of them as separate cases. I do think Aiden, his 16-count indictment, will be winnowed down to a few charges. They are felonies, so it is serious. And did he help himself with this new arrest? No, no, he didn't. He walked right into a trap, I'm afraid. All right, guys, just briefly as one thing that stands out, and I had mentioned it in our last update of the Karen Reed case a few episodes back. But man, this is like a lighthouse to me, this one issue. It's the issue of the taillight. When Karen Reed is leaving her house, pulling out of the driveway, her vehicle bumps John's vehicle, which is parked kind of kitty corner in the driveway. And she bumps his car. You see it move. But the video goes on, she continues a turn, and you can fully see that those lights are mostly intact. This was 
in the morning, hours after they said Karen Reed had struck John O'Keefe. And the state police would later find fragments of Karen Reed's taillights at the Canton address in the lawn. However, those lights, to me, look almost fully intact. They do. They look fully intact to me. And you can watch it, and we can talk about it. Watch the video and drop me a line at Barry at BostonConfidential.net. But be prepared to discuss how I can see on the video that those lights are intact while simultaneously the light fragments are on the lawn in Canton. Now, guys, does that make me a conspiracy theorist because I can see that plain as day? Also, staying in the vein of the taillights, Chief Berkowitz, who was the chief of police at the time for the Canton Police Department, a week after this happened, a week after the incident, the chief, who does not live nearby, was driving down Fairview and noticed what turned out to be taillights flickering in the sunlight. And quite frankly, I just don't believe it. Those did turn out to be fragments of taillights somewhere on the street, somewhere on the lawn. I, I'm not exactly sure. But after how many searches by the Canton police, they did the initial search. Then the Massachusetts State Police, who has a specialty unit that searches for evidence just like this, they missed it. But Kenny Berkowitz driving by while moving spots it. Sorry. No, thank you. I do not believe that. I do not believe that at all. And sometime later, the first week of February, I think it was, he contacted a reporter and asked the reporter to remove Brian Albert's name from his reporting on Twitter because Brian Albert was a stand-up member of the community. And actually, the reporter obliged him and removed the post. So he's on Team McAlbert here, Berkowitz, literally, you know, asking that tweets be taken down and all this. That's a stretch on a good day. Throw it in with him asking for leniency online for his friend Brian Albert. Man, it just doesn't look good. No, scratch that. It looks corrupt. It looks corrupt. And I think Berkowitz, I've heard some rumors that he's ill. And if he is, I'm sorry for that. But if he's still around, he's going to have to answer for that. Honestly, if the prosecutors themselves, Adam Lally, were straight shooters, they wouldn't use any of that evidence because it's laughable. The next thing, guys, that stands out to me is the change in the prosecution's view of how this murder, yes, they charged with murder, how this murder occurred. Originally, guys, they said Karen was backing her SUV up at five miles an hour while making a three-point turn and struck John. But you have to knowingly strike John for this to be murder. And... That combined with whatever analysis somebody did 
And I think I remember that the analysis revealed that John would have had to have been hit on the other side of the vehicle, on the other side of the taillights, and it just wouldn't have worked. So they revamped that theory, or actually replaced it, because now they say Karen was backing up at almost 17 miles an hour for something like 60 yards or something like that. It was virtually impossible. Actually, Aiden Carney went down there with a friend of his and tried to recreate it, and it was nearly impossible to do. And that brings me to my next point, guys. The Massachusetts State Police have their own accident reconstruction unit. Why didn't they go down there and do accident reconstruction? I'm betting the Canton Police also have an accident reconstruction unit. And the reason I know that is because the Massachusetts State Police teaches at local police academies for those local offices to become certified in accident scene investigation. Pretty quickly after John was killed, they knew that a vehicle was involved. Why didn't they try to recreate that, right? They had Karen Reed's vehicle there. They knew the dynamics of the street, of the house, of the lawn where John was found. Why didn't the Massachusetts State Police call in the Accident Reconstruction Unit? Maybe because they didn't want to really know the answer to the question, what happened to John O'Keefe? That's what the defense is going to say. You didn't want to know. That's why you didn't investigate it. I think that's going to hold water going forward, guys. And my next point is the Commonwealth's own witnesses. Matthew McCabe and Jen McCabe state that they watched Karen Reed drive from the neighborhood, straight out of the neighborhood, not backing up 60 feet at 17 miles an hour, but departing the neighborhood. They said they saw that. Ryan Nagel, who was there to pick up, I believe, his sister at one point, the sister, I think, ended up staying at the party a while longer, but Ryan Nagel his testimony was that he was there. Karen Reed was sitting in her SUV with the dome light on so he could see the entire cabin. She was the sole occupant. You would think as investigators, you'd get that testimony from your witness and you'd say, geez, we got to start looking in a different direction because John wasn't in the vehicle. Where does that leave? Like, what's left? The house. And if John got into the house, Karen Reed's innocent. That leads me to Sarah Levinson, who I believe is a nurse, who was present at the party that night, and Julie Nagel again. They got a ride home, and they went right past the spot where John was lying. They did not report seeing a body on the lawn. In fact, these two witnesses were not interviewed for more than a year by the Massachusetts State Police. Now, why is that? You have two people at a murder scene, at a party, and you don't interview them for a year. One year. They all live in town. They live in what? A two, three-mile radius. 
How are the state police going to explain that on the stand, right? Because they're not facing prosecutor Adam Lally in his sneaker shoes. They're facing a top-notch defense team. They're going to run a truck right through that. Also, something that is extremely strange relating to the Commonwealth's witnesses. Sarah Levinson's name was misspelled. Julie Nagel's name was misspelled. A ton of these witnesses' names appear to be intentionally misspelled. So if they were Googled or looked up on the internet in some form or fashion, their names wouldn't come up. And it's already been determined that Michael Proctor, who resides in Canton, knew these people. He knew this group. And I know I mentioned in the last episode that those pictures of Trooper Proctor, Colin Albert, and the rest of the clan, there's no way the Commonwealth can say that he doesn't know them, that Proctor doesn't know the McCabe's and the Alberts. There's no way. And from sources I hear in this case, the district attorney's office has kind of come to the conclusion that they're going to have to fess up that Trooper Proctor did, in fact, know these people who were involved. Otherwise, you give the defense the opportunity to say that the lead investigator here was a liar from Jump Street, and everything that stems from that is tainted. So I do believe that the Commonwealth's going to have to fess up to that. It is plain as the nose on your face that Proctor knew these people. He's literally dancing with Colin Albert in a video. I mean, come on. What do they take you for, an idiot? Now, back to Jen McCabe and her text, How Long to Die at 2.27 a.m. And again, she tried to duplicate that at... I believe it was 6.24 or 25 a.m., hoping to override that. Who was she inquiring about? I do believe that Mrs. McCabe's going to have to take the Fifth Amendment on this issue. She's not going to be able to testify because she has her own attorney, and she'd be in jeopardy, I believe. And the defense is going to attack the hell out of that even if they give her immunity from prosecution, some deal. The jury's going to see that and be like, you have to give your own witnesses immunity? Because the first question will be, who are you asking about because you told the state police you thought John went home? So who are you asking about? Who's dying in the cold? The only person who died in the cold that night was John O'Keefe. And then... Jen McCabe deletes her phone logs. Why did she do that? When was the last time you deleted your phone library? The night somebody was killed at a party you attended? I've never deleted mine. Never. Never had any reason to. I'd never even think to. But for some reason, that occurred to Jen McCabe, whose own fitness tracker shows her up all night walking around her own house. Are these the actions of just another party goer? I don't think so. I don't think she's going to be able to testify. I just don't, you know? I don't see how an attorney is going to let her put herself in jeopardy. Same thing for Brian Albert. 
you would have had a better chance of seeing Casper the ghost than seeing that cat. He is in the wind, right? And the post-incident behavior on his part, I know I went over that on a previous podcast. It's absurd, but he's just trying to keep all and any evidence away from him. And to date, he's done a good job. And just, you know, talking about Brian Albert and Mrs. McCabe, Mrs. McCabe, they tried to defend her Googling how long to die in the cold. It was some convoluted thing that ADA Lally put out saying she was actually on a site on Safari on her phone, checking scores on a league call called Ozone Basketball. And it turns out there are no scores posted on Ozone Basketball. They're not going to put her on the stand. I just don't think they can. You would have to think this doesn't make it to trial. But again, I know I've said this before. They can handle a not guilty. They can't handle a corruption case. They can't. Because Michael Proctor and his sergeant and lieutenant are all tied to major cases in the area with convictions. They've already convicted people. And all of that will be opened up. So, guys, these are the Commonwealth's witnesses. Ryan Nagel, Julie Nagel, Sarah Levinson, the last two hadn't been interviewed for over a year. How are they going to explain that? How are they going to explain that the witnesses were not interviewed inside the Fairview residence? They were interviewed together. It's investigations 101 to separate witnesses so they can't be influenced by one another. Michael Proctor didn't do that. And he pulls something phony there. He says, I formally introduced myself to this group. Bullshit. He's known them since he was a kid. Add in the fact, I know I already mentioned, there was no accident reconstruction, despite a vehicle being involved in this incident. I mean, you could go on and on and on with this case. There's a ton of red flags. They called those what appears to be dog bites on O'Keefe's arm road rash. No, I don't see any road rash. And you can see his leg. You can see his right arm, his shoulders. I don't see it. Where's the bruising? If he was hit in the back, his torso and back would be bruised, heavily bruised. Because don't forget, the vehicle, according to the Commonwealth, was now going 17 miles an hour. Come on. No other bruising of the torso, no other bruising of the legs, and just a gash on the back of the head. That's where the car hit him? Come on. All right, guys, I think that's all I have for you. Those are just a handful of the things that stand out. I know I did the same thing in the last episode, and I know there's some crossover. But, man, these things just stand out for me. Drop me a line at Barry at bostonconfidential.net and let me know your thoughts on this case and where it's headed. All right, guys, I think that's all I have for you right now. I'm going to get on to the next one for you. I want to wish you a happy new year. And I certainly wish you had a great Christmas, happy Kwanzaa, and happy Hanukkah. All right, guys, we're going to be on to 2024. 
big things ahead for Boston Confidential. So looking forward to it. Be safe on New Year's Eve, and I'll see you on the flip side, all right? Mm-hmm.